Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans-Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street. Accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back. Not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened to O.J. Simpson. And look what happened to Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance, not in the Crawl Space studios in Wormtown, but being joined virtually through the magical powers of the internet. Lance, how are you today? Wow, what an intro. I'm doing so well. How are you today? I am doing exceptional as well. Exceptional? Well, I just, I don't want to complain, you know, about anything. Right. Um, privately, maybe I'll complain, but certainly not on the air. Um, there are uh, many people putting their lives at risk, and we're lucky to not be, you know, two of those people. That's accurate, and thank you so much to the people who are doing that. That's right. And Lance, this is part two of our interview with Nada, who is Erica Franelich's sister. And of course, Erica Franelich is a missing person from Middleburg, New York, that we've been covering here. And this is episode four. I do want to let you know that you should listen to the first few. If you haven't already, please do. They are uh, in the feed. And they're important, they're, and they're all pretty shocking. And it's a lot of it's information that has never been out there in the public. That's that's correct. Um, Erica has been missing since October 13th, 1986. Uh, she was 26 years old when she went missing, 5 foot, 4 inches, about 100 pounds. And Nada is a tour de force. She really is. And the heat is being turned up pretty dramatically on Erica's husband, Richard who has always been, I guess you'd say, in the crosshairs of suspicion with the family. Okay, and here is part two of our interview with Nada, Erica Franelich's sister and private investigator Greg Overacker. And it picks up right where episode one left off, where Nada is telling the story about how she met up with Richard Franelich in 2005, about 20 years after her sister Erica went missing. 
So then finally I got to the part where you told me that you took her to a bus station and you said our I love yous and goodbyes. I said, now, Rick, that's not true. Because that girl that would say I love you and goodbye and let go that easy is me, not Erica. I said, this is what I think happened. I said, I think you killed her. You guys got in a fight, and she ended up dead. And I think you killed her, and that's what I feel. His head went way down, and he turned beet red. His face turned red, his arms, his hands, everything turned red. He didn't deny it. He didn't admit to it. Wow, that's riveting. Sorry if we're uh, if we're quiet. It's because we're just listening. It's uh, riveting. He never got mad with me or anything like that. We, we you know we sat there and talked you know a couple hours. Uh, this conversation was about well, well, five hours long. So wow. Rick never got angry with me or anything. His story, you know, was full of holes. I let him know that I didn't believe it. Nobody believes it. Not even his family. I interviewed with people in his family. They all believe he killed Erica. There isn't one person I've talked to that doesn't. They're friends. They're family. I've talked to several. What's the reasonings behind them believing that he killed Erica? Was it something that he said to them, or did they, or a combination of things he said and knowing their relationship and knowing the history of drugs? They knew the relationship. They were there in New York. They were moving from one family to another because Erica and Rick fought so bad, nobody wanted them at their house. There was a lot of drug use going on. That's why Rhonda, my sister Rhonda, kicked him out of the apartment. Mike wanted him gone out of his house. Then they go to New York, and his family's not going to put up with it either. They basically were mooching off everybody. You know, it almost seems childlike, doesn't it? That So you're in a, a violent relationship, and you both have drug problems, but it's, it's, it's actually known for the fact that it's violent. And then... You're around your family, your large, very large family, with multiple house, households in the immediate area and stuff like that. This woman that you have a child with is with you on your hip day and night. Then all of a sudden she's gone, and you go, how convenient. You go, oh, yeah, I put her on a plane. I put her on a bus. And then she's never heard from again. What are the chances? I don't know what the odds would be. That you have a tumultuous relationship like that. I'm not saying it's not possible, but... It's not possible with Erica. If you do put her on a bus or something, the chances that she would completely disappear and no one would ever hear from her again. It almost seems like a childlike excuse, you know? To me, it just comes off as that, you know, you got caught with your hand in the cookie jar and you just deny it, deny it, deny it, deny it, deny it. The chances, you know, you and the cookie jar are the only one in the house. Right. Well, I think you just said it right there, uh, Nada, that it's not possible with Erica. This wasn't possible, and it was. It just sounds like, uh, a, to your point, Greg, that he just made made an excuse on the fly and wasn't. You know, just it seems like that's just something that probably made sense in his head. You know, I don't know. She, we said our goodbyes and our I love yous. And boy, I'd love to see her again, but you know, it just got to the point where she didn't want to be here anymore. And then he gets away with it. Like everything is stacked up against him. He shouldn't have gotten away with these things. And people say how hard it is to get away with murder, but everyone knows he did it. 
he didn't he didn't he didn't uh say he didn't do it when you confronted him about it he's got the worst uh alibi and the worst excuse and and she's never been heard from again so okay you put her on a bus and she just decided she's never going to uh talk to her kids again she just that's it like just like that went from being obsessed with this man to to no i'm done clean you know cold turkey from this guy it's all it's all ridiculous doesn't it seem like if if he put her on a bus and she left it's all very sad you know she's not around her son and she had to go home because they just couldn't make it work and she couldn't really they couldn't really afford to take care of their child so you know i have family in the area he can stay with her don't you think that months later richard would call Nita's family and say How's the matter with your sister? Why, does she care about her kid? Is she she going to call him? Is she going to call and say hello? She gonna, does she care if he's okay? No, because he knows she's gone. So he just doesn't bother with any of that. It's too obvious. Well, the other thing I said to him, too, is when he said, they said, I love you and goodbye, I said, Rick, where did she get the money? And he said, I don't know. She must have held some back. I'm like, drug addicts hold money back? I'm thinking this to myself. There's no possible way drug addicts hold money back. Well, later he comes up with a statement and gives a statement saying she had money and, and the amount she had. Mm-hmm. But again, he magically doesn't know where it came from. Because it would be, he, when someone says to you, when an investigator says to you, oh, she gets on the bus with no money, well, then all of a sudden you have to say, well, of course she had money. She doesn't have a job. She has no way of getting any money. But yeah, but she had money, point, but where did the money come from? Oh, I don't know. She got it somewhere. Yeah, he doesn't know she must have held them back to, yeah, she had $280. There's two conflicting stories right there. When right. he told you that he had been clean for five years, did you believe him? No, but I didn't care. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't believe him. Not from what little Ricky was telling me. Right, because little Ricky was was uh, saying that this was still going on and the, the, the abuse was still happening, right? Yeah. Nada, why don't you tell us... Uh, the circumstances surrounding you going to Vermont to meet with Richard and discuss Erica with him in, two, what was it, 2005? Yes, beginning of October 2005. How does that begin? I was contacted uh, by the New York State Police, uh, a Bill John, and um, we were talking for a while, and uh, they decided that they wanted me to connect with little Ricky, so I did. And um, I started talking to him in the middle of the summer, around around July in 2005. And we had a few phone call conversations first. And uh, the very first conversation I had with Little Ricky was horrible. Um, when I called, he did answer the phone, and I believe he was drunk. And he, yeah, he said he was drunk. And at one point he said, can I, you know, can you call me another time because I don't want to give you a bad impression. Um, and I said, sure, you know, I'll call you another time. And uh, But we stayed on that phone for an hour and a half, and he kept going. He just told me how horrible his childhood was. He wanted a lot of answers about his mom. At that point, I really didn't talk much about his mom. I was just listening to Ricky. He was telling me how... Abused he was by his dad, dad's girlfriends. He said he had anger issues. He'd been in trouble. Sounds like he has the same anger issues his dad has. Okay. Uh, so I just want to um, clarify, 
because uh, before all these names get out there and they're all similar names, um, you're speaking of Ricky, who's uh, Richard and Erica's son. And he was saying that he was abused by both his dad, Richard, and his dad's girlfriends abused him as well? Yes. He said that um, none of them treated him very well. His dad and him fought a lot. And he, he just said he had a horrible childhood. He said, you don't know what I've lived through. So basically, Ricky would have been how old when Erica went missing? He was two. Okay, so he, he has no memory of that. He has no memory of his mother. And he's basically told that we don't know what happened to your mother. She ran off on you. That's what he said he was told. Um, I really didn't get into that part with him when I was talking to him on the phone. Um, he was such a mess when I was talking to him, I didn't know how to approach that. So I just let him vent and I listened to you know everything he had to say. So we talked a few times on the phone. He wanted to know, you know, about the family here in Michigan. He just thought that nobody cared, and his mom ran off on him. And there was a lot of abuse going on. Um, Rick and the his girlfriend now. Let's let's state this right now. Rick is still married to Erica, so Sandy Rich is only a girlfriend. Um, that's who he's with right now. Sandy Rich. Yes, yeah, Sandy Rich. The things that. She was doing to little Ricky. Um, they did not get along. I have a 10-page letter after I met with little Ricky in at the jail. He wrote me a couple weeks later, and that letter is 10 pages long of how horrific his childhood was and how horrible Sandy was to him. What were some of the things that Sandy would do? She was real verbally abusive. She didn't like him. Um, when he was in jail, I guess they found out that it was not him that did whatever happens, uh, hitting somebody or something. Somebody else hit somebody, and Ricky went to jail for it. At the time, they found out after that he wasn't responsible, and they wanted to let him out of jail. He couldn't get out of jail because he had no place to go because Sandy Rich wouldn't let him come back to her place where her and Rick were living. And from what I understand, at one point, Rick got to the point where he said, well, I guess I have to get my own apartment so Ricky can get out of jail. And that's when she let Ricky come back to her place. But she didn't want to lose her um, her man, I guess. It should be noted that Ricky did actually go to jail for assaulting someone. But there, this is a different incident that you're referring to where he talks about in the letter, you know, I never touched this guy. And apparently... Um, it was resolved. I don't think he got in any trouble for that, did he? No. Well, he, um, he had already spent some time in jail. But um, but either way, it wasn't the incident where he, he did really harm someone. Yeah, that, that, this this was a second incident um, why he was in jail this time. The first time, I think, I believe it was in school. Clearly had some anger issues, and um, and he know, and he knows it. And, but when you read the letters, they drip with... What sounds like a real good kid in real heavy turmoil and with some real issues from not knowing about his mother. I, I mean, he goes on and on and on and on about that. A lot of this stems from that. So in a way, oddly, you know, Nada and I have talked about this where not only do people believe that he killed Erica, but in a way he affected his, his son's life to the point where his son possibly took his own life. 
Interesting. Interesting choice of words there. Uh, it made me uh, pivot a little bit from my next question. So I'll just fire off two questions right now. Was was Ricky uh, vocal towards towards his father and his father's girlfriend about Erica, about his mother's disappearance? Was he obviously like questioning them to their face about it? And why did you use the word possibly? You know, I don't know. I don't want to accuse anybody of that, but that a lot of people express the fact that they don't think Ricky killed himself. And now I don't know. I, I have no idea. I wasn't there. I don't have a ton of details about that or anything like that. But that's a lot of people express that feeling. So either way, I mean, if he killed himself, he just he you can tell that this kid is in so much turmoil over the abuse that he suffered directly in his home that he was just, you know, he was just in turmoil. It's it's sad to read. It's heartbreaking to read. I want to back up a little bit because when I was at the jail with um, little Ricky, there's one statement he made to me. I didn't tell him anything about his dad maybe killed his mother. I was letting him do the talking, and I wanted to get down to the point where Maybe he could tell me if he'd heard anything through the years. That was the whole point of me going to the jail in the first place. And at one point when we were there, he said his dad and Sandy got into an argument, and she yelled out, why don't you tell little Ricky what what you did to his mother? So that came from Sandy Rich, him finding out that his dad may have done something to his mother. That did not come from me. He, this kid was in so much mental turmoil, I couldn't possibly tell him what I thought. But he did, when he told me that when I was at the jail, he said, my dad said my mom was cheating on him. I even had a hard time saying anything about that to him. This kid was hurt. I just looked at him and I said, Ricky, both your parents cheated on each other both your parents are on drugs, and both your parents are wrong. That was the only statement I made to him. I didn't accuse his dad of anything. His fighting with Sandy Rich through Ricky's childhood did that. And I talked to little Ricky two nights before his suicide. That was nothing about Erica, that conversation. He was crying on the phone and telling me that he took some medicine or something and he had a bad reaction to it. He was afraid that he was, if he did a drop because he was on parole, that it was going to come up, you know, a bad drop and he was afraid of going back to jail. And I mean, literally crying on the phone. You know, he said, you know, I still want to come to Michigan. Um, I swear to you, I did not do any drugs or anything because I told him, if you're on any kind of drugs, you cannot come here. And I said, I'm, I'm going to be straight about that. I said, I'll let you come to Michigan. And he wanted so badly to come here and meet his mom's family. He believed his childhood was horrible because he didn't have his own mom. And when he told me that he was so afraid of going back to jail, he said, you don't understand. I'm walking around on eggshells here. Sandy told me as soon as I do one thing wrong, she's going to make sure I go back to jail. Now, that was just the day before he came up missing, the night before. And for a kid that writes like he does, I mean, he puts his heart on his sleeve. He tells everything. He doesn't hold anything back. He writes letters, like 10-page letters, 
I've, I got four pe- letters from him from October to December. And all of a sudden, now he commits suicide and there's no suicide letter from a kid that definitely would write a letter. And I've talked to several people around his friends, even family members. Rick's family think it's very suspicious. They don't believe Ricky killed himself either. What do you think? From the beginning, I couldn't believe it. Not after the phone call I had with him. All he wanted to do was come back here and get get back here to Michigan. And then all of a sudden, he's gone. Two days later, Rick called me. Rick called me and told me that he hung himself and that Rick found him in the woods. And he had to cut him down. How did he find him in the woods? Did he know that he would be out there? Did he talk to him beforehand? That's what was suspicious to me. How did he know to go to the woods? The woods are right next to Rick and Sandy's house that they're living in. Was he deep in the woods? I don't know. I um, When I went to the funeral, I did go by their house in the woods, and Rick asked me if I went back in there, and I told him no. Uh, Rick called me to come to the funeral, and which I did. Yeah, I was in shock because it just didn't make sense. Had, had he ever talked about committing suicide before? Not to me. And you were pretty close to him. He wrote you letters all the time. He never said anything in the letters that he was thinking about hurting himself? We were calling from July when I started contacting him for a whole year. We were talking regularly on the phone. And he never said anything about possibly hurting himself, causing harm to himself. It's really interesting when somebody hangs themselves in the in the woods, because if that's the choice that you're going to uh, go by in order to commit suicide, you know, if you're having suicidal thoughts, then you obviously try to think through how you're going to do it. And I don't know, I'm not an expert, I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, but it seems to me like someone who would hang, hang themselves in the woods, they're doing it so that they prevent somebody from the wrong person from finding them it's almost like being polite about it you you you've gone off to be secluded to do this so that you know maybe a stranger will find you they used to party in the woods so you know maybe possibly that you know everybody knew you know where he went in the woods to hang out with his friends the whole thing mystery to me was this kid's gonna leave a suicide letter and now there's none uh, he even wrote to Bill John. He wrote letters to that senior investigator. Uh, Bill John helped him out a little bit, and um, he was real thankful to Bill John because Bill John connected me with little Ricky. You know, he, he always thought this side of the family didn't care anything about him. He didn't even know how big this family was. Yeah, it was just because he wasn't ever given the information by his father, right? His dad just told him he up and left him. Yeah. And that hurt him. That turmoil was inside him his whole childhood. I don't think Rick understands what he did when he took his mother out of his life. He didn't he didn't think and and far enough in advance to understand this was not gonna go well. Oh Canada, a vast idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the Great White North, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottawa game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcasts. 
sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. I have a question uh, that I should have asked um, when you were telling the story about how you asked Rick... Oh, I'm sorry. How, when you asked Richard about, um, you know, did you do this? And, and I don't believe you. Um, when you, when you confronted him with this, was that at the end of the conversation or, or did you guys continue to talk? We talked a little bit after that, but I didn't ask him if he killed her. I told him he killed her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he never said, he never said anything to the contrary. He just lowered his head. His head went down his arms were on the table and one hand was over the other one at the time. And his head went down and he turned beet red. His arms turned beet red. His hands were red. His face was red. He didn't, he didn't respond. Were you nervous? Did, did you think he was about to snap? I was in a public restaurant. Um, I wasn't nervous about him snapping on me. He, like I said, anytime he ever came around me, you know, it was all the family dinners and um, stuff like that. He was, he put on his good side around me. Most people did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I I don't have family dinners with arguing, and that's the rules at my house. Yeah. Are you uh, concerned at all that he might hear this, hear you on, on this show and reach out? Um, No, not really. Well, didn't you email him after the uh, the first episodes? Um, I sent him a message on his phone. I sent him both podcasts. Any reply? Uh, oh, no. I didn't expect one. I love that. I got to say, I love that, uh, that approach. Yep. Um, what, what was, uh, Ricky Jr.'s funeral like? Rick had a nice funeral for him. It was a little bizarre. Um, I went there, Bill John took me and we also took little Ricky's half brother, Christopher. He flew in from, uh, Arkansas. I believe he was living in Arkansas at the time. Um, he flew in before I did and then they waited at the airport and then I flew in. And I hadn't seen Christopher since he was six years old. So 
we went over to Vermont. Bill John took us to Vermont, and then he stayed outside. Bill John stayed outside, and he let Christopher and I go to the funeral home by ourselves into inside. And when I walked into the foyer, Rick was standing there, his brother Guy and uh, Sandy Rich. They were all laughing and smiling and talking about something, and I walked in, and, of course, Guy did not know who I was, and neither did Sandy Rich, so... Rick um, introduced them to me, and, um, of course, that happy little smile on their faces went away. They got all nervous. Then Christopher and I went into the funeral home and um, up to the casket, and uh, then I walked into and sat into a row by myself on the other side of Rick and Sandy. It was funny because Guy tried to walk into that row and he looked up, He his head went up, and he saw me, and I thought he was going to trip over himself getting back out as soon as he saw me. And then I noticed that Brother Joe came in in handcuffs with two police officers. He was in jail at the time, so they had to escort him. And then after the service was over, I took the opportunity. Um, they were walking Joe out, and I stepped out in front of him and introduced myself to him. There was no reaction with him at all. He just kept on walking. Well, he, you know, he. Well, they stopped because I, they had no choice but to stop because I stepped in right in front of them. So I just uh, put out my hand. You know, I said, uh, "Hi, I'm Nada's sister, or Erica's sister, Nada." And um, I said, uh, "Little Ricky wrote about you in the letters. Um, thanks for being so good to him." That's all I said to him. And then I stepped out of the way, and they they walked on. No reaction? No reaction. And then after a funeral service, they were had a luncheon. Bill and I did not go to the luncheon, but little Christopher was going to go to the luncheon. And I asked Teresa to make, you know, make sure he was okay and stuff. But it was real funny because uh, Paul Franelick, one of Rick's brothers, I noticed him walking away with Christopher. And I thought that was really strange. You know, why was this family being so kind and all over Christopher at that funeral? And and they actually treated him like he was their family. And I didn't understand that. That was kind of eerie to me. When I walked out, there was a girl standing there. I, I didn't know who it was. She was accusing me of telling little Ricky that Rick killed his mom. And I looked at her and I said, no. I thought it was... Sandy Rich is um, one of her daughters, but I don't think it was now. And I said, no, I didn't tell him that. I said, he heard that from your mother. And she kind of looked at me. I said, would you like to go over and sit on a bench? So we did. And uh, she asked me questions like, well, why didn't you come look for him earlier? And I basically said this family had no clue where he was. We didn't know, you know, where Rick's family lived. It's not like, you know, the money comes out of the trees that you can just hop up and hop on planes and go look for somebody. And I explained to her I was raising um, small kids. My parents, my dad was taking care of uh, my mother, which was a total invalid at the time. And that was the reason that the family didn't go to New York. And no, there is no amnesia in this family, as stated in your other podcast. My mother was diagnosed with a, a tumor on the brain and was treated for that. Yeah, they tried to say that your family had amnesia running in the family. Sandy, she tried to say that. Yeah, 
Sandy tries to say a lot of things. Sandy put out on Facebook um, several years after Ricky's death, um, she put a picture up in in memory of Ricky, and uh, people were asking who it was, and she said it was my son. He is not Sandy's son. He's Erica's son and Rick's son. And Ricky couldn't stand her. I've got it in letters how he could not stand her. So Sandy had told him that that amnesia ran in Erica's side of the family, and perhaps she had left and forgotten almost in like a uh, extended, what do you call it, fuge state? And she probably doesn't remember anything? Is that is that what they That's were getting what at? I think she was trying to tell him. But through the years, there was different, he, they threw different things out at Ricky. You know, your mom just left. Oh, maybe, maybe she had amnesia. And then, oh, when they get in a fight, why don't you tell little Ricky what she did to his mother? What kind of woman stays with a man that murders his wife? Can I read you from the letter? I have it right in front of me. That's a, Please. That is, a, that, that is a great question, though. I just I just want to, before you read that letter, I just want to emphasize that question. I don't know. I don't have an answer to you. But, yeah, what what kind of person does that? That's that's monstrous to me. I, yeah. You think this guy killed his wife, and you're staying in this relationship? Are you desperate? Yeah. By the way, the brother that was there that came in in handcuffs to the funeral, do you know what his charges were? I have no clue. Take a guess. Manslaughter. Domestic violence. Ah. That's why he was in jail? Yeah. So let me read you this from the letter. Uh, So this is Ricky writing to Nada in one of the many long letters that he wrote to her. And he's discussing his mother, of course. But he's talking about uh, them talking to him about his mother. And he says, I refuse to believe any of that because it, just sounded like speculation and far from the truth. Sandy also told me that amnesia ran in mom's side of the family and that maybe she was out there not knowing who she was. I didn't believe that either, and that sounded like it was stretching quite a bit. I always thought that there was more to it than how Dad would explain it to me. Now that I'm finding out more and more lately, it seems all of it strange to me, especially after Sandy said something to Dad about her telling me what happened what really happened to my mom, how he killed her. There's something they're both hiding, and I'm going to find out eventually. How long was this before his suicide? That letter, letter was in October of 2005, his suicide, let's put it this way, maybe his suicide, was in July, two days before he hit 22 years old. His suicide was July 14th. So a few months later. Nine months that letter was October 16th, uh, 05, and his suicide, supposed suicide, was 2006, July 14th. Do you think that he actively pursued, um, you know, his own personal investigation uh, in during that time frame? I heard that, that he accused his dad of it, that they fought over it. Um, I heard that he called his dad a murderer. Hmm. His dad and him did not get along. They fought a lot, and him and Sandy did not get along. He couldn't stand Sandy. Was there ever um, an autopsy done? That I don't know. Do you know anything about that, Greg? I don't. All I know is that he was cremated and his ashes were spread in New York at the family property. Nada, are there um, other reasons why there is some suspicion um, about Ricky Jr.'s supposed suicide? Since I've been talking to you know some of the family members and some, some of the little Ricky's friends right there in uh, Vermont, 
you know, I didn't bring it up to them that I had my suspicions, but they brought it to me that they had their suspicions. They just, they don't think, and, and they knew how badly Rick and Ricky were getting along. And some of his family members stated that they thought Ricky was getting close to the truth. So that's why they were so suspicious about when he came up. I mean, Rick's got a hot temper. He could have snapped. He snapped with Erica. He could have snapped with little Ricky. Erica was also uh, beat so badly in 1982, she ended up in the hospital because of little Rick, or because of big Rick. I think she had a broken clavicle then. But she was beat in 82 by Rick. Rick snaps. Rick snaps like his dad. If Erica lost a child in that hospital stay in Kansas when that happened, that would be a death attributed to him. Right. So now we have a baby, possible pregnancy in 82 that's attributed to uh, Rick. Then Erica comes up missing, and now Rick. And then, lo and behold, Rihanna Maitland's missing from the same area Rick's in. There's a lot of death around that guy, and he's nonviolent. He's never been violent a day in his life, as he says. Okay, so when when he found, um, I still have a couple of questions about him finding uh, Ricky's body. When he found the body, did he run back and make a phone call to call the call the police or call an ambulance? He cut him down. So his friends, from what I understand, found him in the woods, and immediately after, when they were coming out of the woods, Rick and Sandy. And uh, Sandy's daughter, Heather, was there before 911 got there. Rick told me that he had to cut little Ricky out of the tree. Wow. He said it, it was a hell of a thing to have to do. Yeah. yeah. I can imagine it would be a hell of a thing to cut your child out of a tree from an apparent suicide. How did he get there before the ambulance? That I don't know. And why wasn't he at work is what a lot of people are wondering. Why wasn't he and Sandy at work? He's been missing since the night before. What did they know? I mean, on one point, Sandy, uh, when Greg was interviewing with Rick on the phone, Sandy was in the background and um, she was screaming in the background. But Rick said that, you know, she heard little Ricky crying on the phone to me the night before he came up missing. Well, what happened after he got off that phone with me if she heard that? Because, yes, he was crying. So that was a true statement. So what happened when he got off that phone? Basically, what what she, was trying, she was trying to throw blame on you, that you somehow upset him, and this is why he did what he did. That's what she was trying to say. Um, I didn't upset him. He was just wanted to make sure he could he could get to Michigan. That he, you know, whatever was going down with him at the time, you know, it wasn't drug related because he knew I wouldn't let him come here if, you know, he was on drugs. And I assured him he could come to Michigan. I said, we will straighten it all out. I said, we'll call Bill John. Bill John will help you. We'll just get it straightened out. So I didn't have an issue with him on the phone. His mother wasn't talked about that night. But the only one he talked bad about was Sandy. He was said he was walking on eggshells because of her. So if she overheard him crying, she also overheard him saying that. So I can only imagine what happened when he got off that phone. 
She's making it sound like you upset him, and I don't think they need any help upsetting him. They don't need any help upsetting him. His whole life was upset because of those two. When I talked to him in 05 at that restaurant, um, we talked about the fact that he was supposed to come in and take a polygraph. I asked him why he didn't take it, and he said his lawyer told told him that um, he shouldn't. And I told him, I said, Rick, if I'm innocent, I'm taking a polygraph. I said, any innocent person would have taken a polygraph. And I think it was right after when he was asked to come in for that polygraph that he took off to Vermont. And that's where he met Sandy. Erica's family wants to bring Erica home. That's all we want. Rick's brothers know if one of them even has a decent bone in their body, turn him in. I wouldn't allow one of my family members to get away with this. I don't care what we have to do, a plea bargain, whatever. Somebody needs to tell where Erica's body is so we can bring her home and bury her. And we're not going to stop until it's over. These private investigators on the case right now said they're sticking with it to the end. And I wanted to thank everybody that's worked on it right now, Greg, uh, Bruce Maitland, Lou Barry, you guys, Tim and Lance. Thank you very much for all you're doing. Yeah, we the, the, the organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, once it's our case, it's our case. We don't let it go. It's on. We'll have it until there's an, uh, a resolution. Our resolution is getting Erica back. We're not going away. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.